Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Our author tonight, Jacqueline Suskin, has composed over 40,000 poems with her ongoing improvisational writing project, Poem Store. She is the author of seven books, including Help in the Dark Season by Write Bloody 2019 and Every Day is a Poem, Sounds True 2020. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and Yes Magazine. She lives in Northern California. Uh, so without further ado, everyone welcome Jacqueline to the stage. Hi. Um, I, I bought myself this really cool backdrop. So proud of myself. Um, so I can read you poems about the desert because I can't be in the desert. My grand plan before California caught on fire uh, was to go to the desert and be there for this and read actually from the desert just to pay tribute to the place that inspired the book. But as we all know, that is not happening. Um, our state is on fire. So as I uh, close the trilogy uh, that's dedicated to California, I also pay tribute to it and um, also draw attention to the fact that climate change is real and we have a lot of work to do. I'm not sure we'll get there, but um, <laughs> I want to start the reading with, with a note on that sort of depth. Uh, this book kind of covers all of my experiences in Joshua Tree, which has been a place that has been immensely healing for me. Um, as the books kind of move through the places in California where I've spent the most time, um, the first book was about Humboldt County where I live now. Um, the second book is about Los Angeles. And just to say all of you in Los Angeles, I miss you so much. And thank you so much to Skylight Books, my favorite bookstore in LA. I miss being there. I miss everyone. It's so great to see my friends from LA show up and from all over the place. Um, and this third iteration to close the trilogy uh, is about Joshua Tree, which is a place where I've lived on and off for many, many years and have had incredible experiences. It's transformed my entire life. Um, I didn't actually end up in the desert because I was a person who knew that the desert was magical. I ended up there because I know how to take care of uh, farm animals and a ranch, and I took care of a piece of land out there and some horses, some Mustangs and some animals and that allowed me to 
have this beautiful connection with the desert that then inspired all these poems. So I'm just going to read and kind of ramble about the poems. And at the end, you can ask me any questions you want. And honestly, it's funny to be sitting in my room and reading over the computer. I so much prefer seeing all of your beautiful faces in front of me and getting to kind of feed into the energy of a room. But I have kind of grown accustomed to this. And I've said this a few times during the pandemic, which is artists need to perform. We need to give our work. That's why we create. It's so important to my mental health and to my well-being to be able to offer my work up and to have it received and to know what you think about it and to hear your responses and to see that you're not only buying the book as a beautiful object, but you're listening and you're responding and reflecting. So thank you to all of you for being here and for, for doing that. Uh, thank you to Mike for this drink, <laughs> drink this. And then I'm gonna get to it. This is actually the second to last poem in the book, but it feels very important to start with, just so you know that I feel this way. California doesn't belong to me. We're not supposed to be here. Who sees a barren world will plant and cultivate, will complicate the landscape. We did that, and now the coyote circles the fence and waits for the house cat. Rattlesnakes get caught in the plastic tree shades. The birds sip from the leaking hose. And I know I'm not allowed to feed the desert tortoise my strawberries, but the whole system is broken anyhow. Everything is stolen from a lineage of people who knew how to live with this land, who nurtured the collaboration with, with Western earth, who tended rivers and exchanged effort with animals, who filled baskets with just enough and never too much. California doesn't belong to me. Its human bond was cracked long before my atoms came together in this form, long before the frontier became a seed of longing in greedy hearts. Now everything I love is just a ghost of what could have been. Now everything I wish to protect is a remainder of a story once shared in song the greatness of the coast cherished by those who rightfully wed the edge. There's a lot of conversation right now about land back and giving land back, which I think is uh, to be greatly magnified in the coming months, I hope. That's what I see happening. Um, there's a lot of discussion to happen about that and my hope is a poem like that uh, can kind of spark your thoughts on looking into what it means to know whose land you're on and what it is to be a colonizer and in a place that is indeed not yours. Um, so I wanted to start the reading with that <laughs> and now I'll just kind of travel through and I picked some of my favorites and uh, this is my favorite book in the trilogy. I almost don't want to say that, but it's true. It is my favorite book in the trilogy and it's the longest. It's the one that has the most meat to it because although the forest is my home and the place where I love to live, the desert is the place where I heal and grow. And it's, it's the place where the most poetry comes out of me because as you'll see, I kind of reference it many times. I'm uninterrupted there. 
So I'll start with the first poem in the book called Joshua Tree. When fools forget the bounty of the desert and call it dead, your body reminds them of dogged life. Your shaggy limbs reach in every direction as you spread your family throughout the valley. Against the wind, you shudder and bend. You have an uncanny ability to cradle the moon. Your white flowers are cups of air, bells holding thousands of the blackest pupils, seeds that have seen time shift like an ocean. I kneel close and kiss the one white spot on your gnarled trunk. Grandmother with your sturdy hide, your lineage exalts the endless sky. Any sign of a human being. Any sign of a human being in the desert is unwanted. I'm not here to witness us. The discarded garden glove dropped in the sand startles me every time I walk by. I snarl at the tire tracks that tore up the rock field. Old wool blanket, burnt out sedan, rusted box springs, all scars on an otherwise subtle place. The bombs to the northeast, the hiss of cars on a nearby road, and the rattle of chain link, all a distraction from the voice of wind. But the silver set of Toyota keys balanced on the sand hill brings me joy. I like the unknown story there. The footprints that I share the trail with could instill a sense of fear. I'm not alone here. And yet I wonder who else enjoys this rhythmic trek toward the setting sun. Did they restack the mound of black rock so that I'd notice? I changed the composition a bit to communicate with them in return. I hope we never actually see each other. That would ruin it. I never did see that person. <laughs> Thank goodness. How are we to know the limit? How are we to know the limit when something as astonishing as the fig wasp exists? Or when we ride Mustangs? We cannot know where to end or when to give up. We thought this planet was flat. We thought everything beyond the eye's capability was abyss. See how it continues onward? Understand how we're truly as limitless as the universe? We're just spinning, eyes open, mouths open awestruck and guessing. I read this poem the other night to a friend and I was like, <laughs> like that's how we are. <laughs> we're just spinning along folks. I don't know what we're up to. Trying our best. This one kind of echoes that but in a more intense way. It's called The Great Command. The great command holds my attention at various points throughout the day and night. Keep on living, keep on living, keep on living. I hear a voice ask me, what abilities can I manage? Of what am I able? I respond with whatever I can muster. I follow up my ideas with infinite thanks. What else is there in the face of such mystery other than continuous celebration? I'm just happy to be anything at all. I say yes without fault, for nothing could be too wrong. Everything is as it should be. How could it not be? I've been thinking about that 
last question um, a lot lately. Uh, everything is as it should be. How could it not be? And, you know, there could be fault found in that. Uh, but the truth is, is that question just sort of means everything is what it is. What else could it be? And we are the ones who get to envision and imagine and enact that. So that's where I'm coming from there. The great command, keep on living, keep on living, keep on living. <laughs> I've been saying that one to myself. Uh, <laughs> okay, this one's a little different. So many beautiful, intense moments come out of being in the desert because no one's there to interrupt and you just get to dive so deeply into the well of yourself. And I kind of think that, oh, I imagine that quarantine and the pandemic has offered up a lot of that for people. And I hope that we can utilize that. Um, I realize it's pretty relentless, but this one's called On Seeing Love. As I close my eyes, lying in front of the wood stove, I think of love and see a deer. It stares at me and wants me to follow it into the void, but I can't keep my mind clear enough to let it be the guide. It turns back to swallow me. Then I see a tiger. It also opens its mouth to eat me whole. Animal after animal tries to take the lead, but I can't obey, and so I'm devoured again and again and again. When the fire dies down, I open my eyes. The cats flank me and the moths swarm the candle. I don't need to assign the weight of romance to my visions. If I were actually standing in the dark forest and a deer ushered me into the unknown, I'd let it. Okay, so also in the desert, <laughs> There have been some psychedelic times. The desert is psychedelic. And uh, this poem is actually about this time that I decided to eat many psychedelic mushrooms and perch myself on a little hill, smaller than that one, where I could see my house, but I was quite far from it. And uh, this poem is the story of what happened in that moment. No creature ever feels safe. Every creature is always on guard, connected to the will to live. I'm held by my love of earth. I can feel our orbit. I sense the actual spinning motion. I'm embraced by an ancient grandmother spirit and by the light of desert rose cradling my head. Even so, I find myself afraid. I'm lying in the wash, pretending to be the snake, belly and brow on the warm sand. What is it that I fear? Not death, not the snake. I'm afraid of men. I'm afraid a man will find me. I'm a woman alone in the desert. I turn over. This seems wrong. I have my knife and I can see for miles in every direction. I love being alone in the desert. A flock of fighter jets soar over me. The bombs start dropping out at the military base and the ground shakes. I start crying because I see where the fear comes from. And instead of it being irrational, it's reasonable and loud. 
Two hawks appear to do a swirling dance. The moon is full. I see Datura close by. When it's dark, I realize I need to release something old from the left side of my neck. I'm no longer just a small animal. I see myself as a warrior throughout all of time. Various types of armor, once with a baby tucked under one arm, once with my hair in a knot on top of my head, solitary and determined, carrying a sword. This is also when I first see the dead rat in my neck. Is it really dead? I can't tell, but I know it means something and it's time for a ritual. I make three small tombs to bury a bullet shell, a piece of tar roofing and a nail. The grandmother spirit speaks through a spindly chaparral. No creature ever feels safe. The tortoise in its burrow, cottontail in its den, mockingbird asleep in the yucca, always with one eye open, death imminent, and safety is a ruse that lasts but a moment. We all nearly get washed away in the early storms. Some of us perish, some of us root deep enough to hold on. The darkness wants you to forget how many times you've survived it all, that you're an animal with sharp teeth too. I'll do what I can. I'll find a way to wake up the rat. Let that one sink in for a sec. <laughs> um, <laughs> that poem, there, there are things throughout all three of these books, which this is something that I don't even know if I've ever said out loud, that kind of are little themes and things that pull through and they're like parts of the mythology of my life that if you really want to know me, you can see how all of these things align and all of these spirits and things that speak to me are uh, brought throughout these books and kind of some of them get resolved, some of them get talked about again, some of them you just get to find out where they came from. And to me, that's one of my most favorite parts about reading uh, an author or a poet's body of work is just seeing their own personal mythology evolve and kind of finding inspiration in that and also like relating to it. Just add that in. Um, uh, okay, moving on. This one's called To Trust Our Relentless Star. First light has me rise and watch the sky. It makes the mountains undulate with shades of amber and purple. The cup of fire spills itself in the shape of a circle, and I wait each day for its return. We destroyed the protective shield and now our bodies can't handle this much glow. But we didn't know the shield existed. The seers knew. The ancient spirits and guiding prophets knew. The sun has come for its vengeance. I hum to greet it. Coyote sings. Then I sleep again and dream of all my friends. Too many people in my head. Too many people on the planet. What will come of our remaining years on earth? We may watch this heat burn us up. I may sit cross-legged, hovering in space as the whole planet dissolves into flame again. However it goes, the end will happen and I do not hate the sun. There's a thread through all of these. I kind of picked all the heavy hitters. Sorry, <laughs> like in that, I'm in that mood. Um, I, I imagine that we're all in that mood. I don't know how, what other mood there is. So, uh, 
the center of nothing. It's a warm night and I decide to sleep outside after checking the bed for scorpions. The stars are a sheet of white and darkness appears only as thin threads between the glow. I take some deep breaths as coyotes sing a few miles away. I ask the sky, what will we become after so much waste and greed? The answer reverberates in my skull. You will all soon be weightless, without ground, like ears of corn floating in space. Without well-loved land, you won't eat. You'll be outlines of air. A black hole speaks in each human eye. You're the center of nothing, little pencil lines in an equation of chance. Three, three shooting stars end the discussion, and I smile before dreaming. I've cried so much already. Okay, I'll read a few more and then you can ask away. This one's called Remembering. When I'm here, I don't forget. I remember to clean the knife with every use, else it tarnish. I look down at the same spot on the trail each time I pass by to see the dead white lizard, a feast for the largest ants. There's no marker, no tall tree to signal my eyes. I just remember. I like to lean in and hear their jaws working the dried body back into the ground. It's that quiet. I remember to wipe the excess sesame oil onto my shoulder while I'm cooking. It smells so good that I lick it. I remember to close the gate so the dogs can't get the cat. I consider the fact that I can talk aloud to my dead best friend whenever I want to, no one will hear. And this means I can also yell at him. I do, I yell and I cry and I beg. Everything can happen slowly here because there's no need to rush, nowhere to go. And I recall the time only so I don't miss the sunset, so I don't miss my nap to witness just how long a day can be. Desert details. The yellow buds of the chaparral, the wind bending the creosote bush, two names for the same plant. The raven circling overhead, the crow staying close to town, two dark birds so different. The black widow on the windowsill, the hummingbird that hit the window pane, two bodies to mark a seemingly barren view. The brown butterfly grasping the dead Joshua tree, the pistachio shells circling its hollowed trunk, two signs to prove that life remains. The center of the planet is a star. That was inspired by my friend Sunny, who told me the center of the planet is a sun. And I was like, that is incredible. I think about that all the time now. The center of the planet is a star. I write down all of my animal encounters in a handmade journal. I hike to the oasis, go to bed early, wake up early, light a fire in the wood stove, 
I bring more color into my body. I say the name of the sky over and over. I see the black feather on the bench, the pumpkin-sized cloud, the fish scale in the sand, and the milkweed seed caught in my sweater since last summer. Every morning, I envision the roots of myself traveling down into the earth. I remember the center of the planet is a star. I am not afraid to love it. Okay, one last poem. And it's a grief poem because the desert is the place where I go to, uh, to heal, but it's also the place where I've gone to grieve um, more than once. So this is for that. This poem is called Dancing with the Dead You. I smell your shirt and call you a fucking asshole. If your body were here, I know what it would be doing. So I dance the whole Waylon album with, with you. I can see you shaking and twirling then sitting down on the couch to drink and smoke with your mouth turning down the way it did. So certain of yourself. Your consciousness is not alive in my brain because I'm just meat. But beyond the matter, there is something, a replica of your joy, a ghost of your greatness. In the desert, you get to be alive still because it's quiet enough and no one will interrupt me or tell me you're gone. I cry for one second, and then you remind me that now I get to hold on to the version of you that's painless. I won't have to drag you into your bed. I won't have to ask you to quit it with the whole bad boy show. And I won't have to love those parts of you that were so sad. You just get to be my shakedown freak partner now. With my eyes closed, I see you laughing as the black mass of space, dark ooze that rolls and surges freely between stars. Yay. <laughs> Just be here to be everyone clapping uh, all together. Um, thank you so much. That was incredible. Uh, completely enthralling, especially, yeah, just being where we are now and having you here virtually, but also in the desert is just, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks um, yeah. Um, so one question so far. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is, a bunch it, of questions. <laughs> is, it, is it possible to purchase a signed copy of your book? Oh, yeah. You can buy all these books through my publisher, Rare Bird. And um, even though I'm not in LA, they send me books all the time and I sign them. If, however, you want a personal inscription, it won't be that. It will just be my signature. So sometimes I'm kind of it's like strange to me that I like sign all these books and they get sent through the mail just so people can have my little scribble because my signature is not that impressive. <laughs> but I understand that the idea of me holding the book, because I do, I hold them and I write in them and I care. So yeah, you can get a signed copy through Rare Bird. All of the books that they sell through their site are all signed. So no matter what, you'll, you'll get a signed copy. And Rare Bird is an incredible press who we yeah. love a lot. So yeah. I mean, they let me make a trilogy about California. I pitched the idea and they were like, great, we'll do all of that. <laughs> okay. 
Um, wonderful. So I have a question. Um, okay. Is I'm curious about your project, the Poem Store, and how it speaks to this other project, or how it started, what it is. Um, I'd love to hear you speak a bit more about it. Yeah, um, I for the last 11 years, my only job was typing poems for people in public places. Um, so they would tell the subject and I would create the poem. And I think you said that in my bio, it's like 40,000 poems later. Um, I kind of have stepped away from that. Seems like the perfect time to have done that because being in public now is not really appropriate. Um, but after all of those poems, I thought, you know, I need a break. That was a lot of um, output. And I have all these books that I want to write. And there's sort of a balance of being this person who's really uh, a one-on-one -on -one kind of connective person. And that's actually what I prefer. I prefer to connect with people in that way. But I also am a performer and I like an audience. And books are kind of like the medium between that. And so I've put a lot of energy in the last like year and a half or just into my books. Um, and I have another book coming out next month, which I'm really excited about, which is about poetry. And so I just turned a little bit from that project, but that project kind of informs everything I do because I'm not trying to create weird, esoteric, inaccessible poetry. I'm trying to create something that maybe almost anyone could understand or glean something from. So I, I still feel like the poem store project is alive and well, and people order poems from me online all the time. So I send a lot of mail, which is crucial right now and always. So that's like an interesting aspect of it is it just gets to keep going. And I, I really do care about being able to kind of translate the way people are feeling like these books are super personal. They're all about my expression, but Poem Store allows me to sort of reflect back to someone's exact experience, which is really special. Yeah, I love that because it makes poems a conversation also, which they are, I think, but they're usually just a bit more one-sided. So that's really wonderful. Um, and just thinking about that in terms of, you know, you, you said you want your poems to be read by an <clears throat> accessible to everyone, what would you hope that someone who has never been to the desert would get from your poem? Like if they read one of your poems and had never been to the desert, what do you kind of hope to communicate? That's um, a good question. I love that question. Um, I think the, the main thing that I try to communicate is the desert seems like this really sort of inhospitable, dead place to people. And I, I sort of, emphasize over and over and over again in the book that you know it's like a foolish way to look at the earth in general but also just this place is I mean it's more alive almost than anywhere because of how tenacious the life is the life there is just like I will live I will live I will live and there's that feeling of you know that seems inherent in living in general but in the desert it's so potent it's all around you the whole time you're there and you kind of can't escape it so I think that's one of the main lessons and I try to there's a lot of emphasis on that in the book and then the other part of it is just and this is something I think that I could write about for years to come is the solitude of the place and like taking time for yourself and setting aside time for yourself I'm trying to work on a book now that's about what that looks like and like how as a writer having a, a 
a retreat every year and going to the desert and being by myself and knowing that no one will need me or ask me or be, you know, a part of that experience. I could just be alone is how I've gotten so much of my work done. And I think I learned by doing that, that how that is crucial for every human. I actually, I believe that even if you're not inclined to be alone and being out in the middle of nowhere sounds terrifying to you. I actually think that just the headspace of being in a retreat mode is so important and we don't really allow ourselves that it's not a huge part of our culture. So that's another part of the book that I hope kind of comes across, whether it happens in a place like the desert or not. It's, I think it's really important. Yeah, that was wonderful. Thank you. Um, and the questions are pouring in now. So we have a question from, from Jana, uh, which is, what are your favorite rituals around sustainability and loving the planet? Well, oh, um, my favorite. Um, okay, well, the first, <laughs> I'll just get really personal about it. Um, you know, I have a lot of private rituals that I do. And most of my ritual work is really private. I don't tend to like post about it or tell people or express it, but it does come through in these books a lot. Like there's a lot of really private kind of almost secret things that I'm like, oh, okay, well, if you want to read this and get deep into how I like tend to the earth and tend my uh, connection with the earth, reading the book is probably the best way to go. But some, I, I give my period blood every month to a tree. I uh, don't use a lot of plastic. I carry a metal spoon everywhere I go. I have a lot of open conversations with people about how they can adapt um, their ways of being in the world. Uh... Oh my God, can you hear me now? Yay, yes. Oh, wow. Guys, I talked about my period blood and the internet <laughs> could not handle it. That was <laughs> already decided in the chat and some, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so you, you can hear me. <laughs> You're back, yay. That, that was Thank incredible. You. Thank you for your patience, well, everyone. Oh, I just laughed so hard. I was like, wait. <laughs> Did I just talk about my period blood and the internet stopped working? <laughs> yep. Yes, you did. Exactly. Okay. So ah. we, yeah. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Never to be forgotten. Uh, anyways, next question. <laughs> oh, yeah. Next question. Finished answering that one. Um, that one's done. <laughs> okay. What is the background? This is from Denise. Uh, what is the background on the line about feeding the desert turtle strawberries or not? Oh, you should never, you should never feel, feed wildlife. It's not allowed. You should never feed a wild animal anything. My wildlife biologist friends are always telling me that. And although when a desert tortoise, which is very rare, is in front of you, it's all you want to do is feed it your strawberry. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's my answer. <laughs> Oh, guys, the internet, what a, what a sham. <laughs> what a wild trip. <laughs> okay, let's see. I feel like I can see the questions. Okay, whoops, there we okay. go. <laughs> there we are. Um, okay. Can you hear me? I can, yeah. Okay. Oh, my God. 
Um, the internet is just having a field day. It is. Well, I do live not near, you know, a city or anything, so. <laughs> um, okay. Do you feel like there are certain emotions or states of being that bring up more deep and personal writings, anger, worry, bliss from Rena? Yeah, I would say trauma and joy. But those are the two things that I, I think I probably pull from the most. And joy is like awe and wonder and celebration and uh, beauty and being enamored by the world. And then trauma is like pain and suffering and the darkest. I think but for me, both sides of the spectrum come out a lot in my work. Um, and I think the best poetry probably illuminates the mundane with those two things. You know, we look at the most mundane and, and simple moments of life and then find the joy or the trauma in them because they're symbolic or we add meaning because that's what we do as humans. So, Right back in it, guys. I'm ready to go. <laughs> I got all the answers. <laughs> okay, this question might be really difficult. It's from Nicole. Uh, desert sunrise or sunset? What's your favorite? Hmm. I don't have a favorite. I never miss either. There's a poem in the book, actually, that's about that. When I'm in the desert, I watch every sunrise and every sunset every day. There's, I never miss it. So that's the way I like to be out there. Yeah. So desert sun is your favorite. Yeah. <laughs> and then... Oh, Highway 101 played a part in your first two collections. Did you incorporate any highways or known roads in this book as well? well? That's a good question. Yeah, there's some dirt roads mentioned. And then there's not, but where I lived was way out by the military base. And they're just like, I don't, you know, the roads are so um, sparse. So no, not as much roads. I, I hardly ever left the house when I would go to the desert. So Driving wasn't a big part of it. Although I do think driving is a huge part of living in California if you embrace the whole state. Um, but yeah, in Joshua Tree, no, I, I didn't. I do mention dirt roads, but not any roads by name, probably. I like that question. Um, and then from Lori, uh, when is your best time to write and do you edit much? Um. My best time to write is in the morning. If I'm working on a book, I usually get up at like 4 a.m. or some weird hour of the day when no one else is awake. Um, and when I'm writing a book, not obviously when I'm typing poems for people, I edit heavily for a long time. Like some of the poems that appear in these books have had iterations for years. And I work with an editor, my friend Matt Phipps. He's been my editor for like 15 years. Um, he's also an amazing poet. And my friend Meredith Clark, who's a poet, also helps me edit. So, I, I mean, the editing process to me is like the magic of poetry. Like the the real like grit and gut of it is just writing it down. But then the magic of it is like being so intertwined with the nuance of finding the right words and like finding exactly what you want to say and uh, taking the time to do that and being like this one word. I want to change this one word so it expresses exactly what I'm trying to say. So then it's easier for the reader to understand and follow what you're trying to offer up. Thank you, yeah. Um, beautiful. 
Oh, wait, hold on. More questions are coming in. <laughs> They're pouring in again. Um, so when starting out on your road trip of this trilogy, um, did you know where you were going with it? Uh, and was there a realization that unexpectedly came to you when it ended? How did that kind of like conceptual process? Yeah, work? I love thinking about this. I basically, I had all of these poems. I wanted to make a book. I was diving into what that process would look like. And I was like, I have so many poems that are about place, that are about California, that are about my time living in this state. And as I looked at it, I was like, oh, there's all these poems about Humboldt County and living in the forest. And there's all these poems about living in LA. And there's all, all these poems about living in the desert. And at first I thought, well, am I, am I gonna make a like one giant book? And I thought, no, then I have to wait a really long time. So that process is going to take a long time. So I thought of the trilogy concept just in order to get the work out there and be like, oh, I can uh, narrow my focus in on these places that have affected me. Because if you read my work or, you know, know me at all, you know that I'm obsessed with planet Earth and in love with the Earth. So uh, focusing on place and land seems like the most appropriate route for me. Um, and that's kind of how the books took form. And luckily, like I said, Rare Bird was like, great idea, we'll do that. Um, but the the concept itself actually just came from seeing that pattern arrive in um, going through all of my work and all of my journals from all the last, you know, 11 years of my life. I moved to California in 2009, so. Lovely. I saw someone ask if I write with a pen and yeah. I oh yeah. <laughs> yeah I, like that. I like that question. I write with a pen. I write my journal all the time. So many of my notes come from that. So um, that's a, a big part of my process. I, I mean, I, I use my typewriter for many other things and, and usually to offer up some kind of consensus clarity to give to someone or a letter or something like that. Um, or like just the texture and the look of it. But when I'm writing my ideas down, I have a journal and I write with Amazing. And then um, one final question, which feels very current, of course, is uh, have you felt called to write about the current wildfire chaos? Um, yeah, I have been writing about that. Uh, I've been writing a lot about telling the difference between fire and smoke um, and uh, fog and uh, seeing this like, you know, there's there's fire happening on the horizon that I can see, like there's a huge plume, but then there's the smoke that comes in from really far away, which is actually different and from something that is completely unconnected to actually anything close to here. And then there's fog that fills the valley every day. And like deciphering between those three things, like an active fire, a smoldering fire and fog has been a really big part of my daily uh, routine. So I've been writing a lot about that, but there is a poem about fire in the Los Angeles book, the, the second volume that I've been kind of going back to. And I posted that the other day because uh, it, it definitely pays tribute to living in this state means you live with fire. And it has always meant that actually. And indigenous folk have a lot more connections with that than any of us do. So uh, looking at what that history is, has been a big part of my learning process of living in California. And I highly recommend everyone uh, understanding cultural fire and what that has played and the transformation of that into our, you know, climate justice issues. So, 
yeah, I'm writing about fire. I'm thinking about fire all the time. It's hard not to. I don't think you can live here and, and not connect with that, especially if you're connected to the landscape like I am. So, yeah. Um, and uh, an encore question is from <laughs> Shalini. Um, uh, so the question, it intimidates her and she is, a, okay, she loves writing but it intimidates her and she's afraid of the idea of perfect poetry. Um, how does one deal with that inner critic and also the fear of judgment of writing? Well, it depends on who you're writing for. I always say that you should ask yourself, like, who am I writing for? Are you writing for everyone? Or are you writing for just yourself? Are you writing for your friends and family? I talk a lot about that in my book that comes out next month, Every Day is a Poem. It's just basically all about how to give yourself permission to be a poet. And it, if that means that you see the world as a poet or that you write poetry in your journal and never show it to anyone, or it's just a mindset, or you want to create work that you share with the world or just share with your friend group, like all of that requires a different type of attention and a different type of uh not, I wouldn't even say judgment. I would say editing. You know, if you want to write work for the world, then you edit in a different way. So that that's what I have to say about that. And I think there's a lot of um, tools that you can use to figure out what kind of poet you want to be and how you want to include that in your in your practice. Yeah, wonderful. Um, well, Jacqueline, do you have any final thoughts or a final poem or anything to close us out before we, before we start? Um, no, I, I, I just want to say thank you again for having me, Skylight, and thanks everyone for tuning in and listening. I know these are really weird, hard times, and it sometimes seems superfluous to um, buy books of poems or listen to people read poetry, but for me, that's always been a really healing and soothing thing, and I wouldn't put that uh, apart from the importance of this moment, the you know, the practice of just like letting yourself be soothed and healed by something. It's, uh, it's pretty crucial. So thanks for letting me be a part of that tonight. <laughs> thank you for being a part of it. Um, thank you so much. And thank you everyone for coming um, this event. And thank you for your patience also while we dealt with technical <laughs> While I broke the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Period blood, blood broke the internet again. <laughs> um, this event will be available for replay in just a few seconds. Um, so you can share it or watch it again or yeah, anything. And Thanks. thank you so much. And thank you. hopefully we'll see you soon. Yeah, good night. Good night, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.